everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 47, Royal Ascot, day one, Scott Ferguson. And welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. Well, we've started Euro 2020 off, and I've already gotten a voice call or a video call from Eddie. So it's nice to make me jealous while I'm waking up at 6 a.m. to watch the matches, and you guys are hanging out in the bar with everyone and enjoying yourselves. So that was that was great to to kind of get a little rubbed in the face there with, with you guys all out at the pub watching the matches. I like nothing more, Frank, than rubbing something in your face. <laughs> Great. Sam's left you, speechless. You, no, I, I, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for your response, Frank. <laughs> like it's, I, can't, I can't deny it. You can't deny it. Sam is lost in the imagery. But yeah, no, it's it's been... Uh, I mean, obviously we're going to probably touch on the the sort of serious issue from Euro 2020 so far, which has been Christian Eriksen's, uh, I mean, people keep referring to it as an injury, which seems a little bit bizarre to me, but his medical incident, I don't know the best way. Collapse. Yeah. Cardiac arrest. Like it's, but, it's, uh, it's apart from that, it's, it's been an enjoyable few matches. I don't think it's the most spectacular start to the tournament ever. The most of the matches I think have been sort of fairly mediocre. Um, and you know, it's a couple of the, you know, you've obviously had a couple of the sort of tournament favorites at this point play their opening match. Each of them has looked fairly impressive, but not amazing. But it's too, you know, the important job from the opening match is just to get points on the board and feel like you have a, a starting point. But yeah, good tournament so far, aside from the Christian Eriksen incident. Yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, uh, we said it before, like we expect all of the big the big nations do pretty well. And then you see Belgium come out and completely tear Russia apart. You see um, Italy come out and um, Turkey put in a pretty diabolical performance. England put in a pretty comprehensive performance, I guess, today against Croatia. And then you look Ooh. at like the second and third teams. Comprehensive and... England? That's always pretty decent. They're playing Croatia, World Cup finalists. I think it's pretty good. 28 degree heat. I, I thought the it, opening. I, mean, I thought the opening half an hour was impressive. And it felt after a while, as the match started to tick on, I had that awful feeling that, uh-oh, they've missed that opportunity to get a goal and then maybe pull away, which is there not was... dissimilar to what happened in the semifinal. Exactly. But, yeah, no, exactly. You're exactly right. There was this feeling that maybe Croatia were getting a bit too comfortable, but I think England managed the game pretty well. I, I, I yeah. mean, ultimately, I, I, you don't get to play many tournament games, right? So the ones you get in front of you, all you've got to do is win. And England have played a really decent team and won. So I think, yeah, it's good. I, I, I agree with you. I think I, I wouldn't say comprehensive, but what I would say is, you know, they they came through and got the win. You know, like, like we're saying, it did start to resemble the last time they played Croatia in the, in the semis, except this time they did come through and win. You know, so I, I think that is a positive step in the direction. It wasn't a standout performance. Like I wasn't blown away at all. Um, the, the first 30 minutes, if they had kept that pace, then that's a different story. I think, you know, maybe they even put a few in, you, you know, you got unlucky with the Foden, um, off the, off the bar, but uh, post, yeah, I, I mean, post. Yeah. I, I think it, they, they won. Right. And that's a big thing. 
Exactly. Yeah, no, it's job done from that perspective. But yeah, I think comprehensive is a bit strong. And I actually felt like in the second half, Croatia started to edge things and that the goal almost came slightly against the run of play at that stage. Now, I think on the balance of the full 90 minutes, England deserved to win, but I don't. I definitely don't think they looked sort of considerably better than Croatia. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an opening match. They, you basically have won the group in that match. So, you know, that's nice. And that's with utmost respect to Scotland and the Czech Republic. But, you know, that was the real test of the group out of the way. And you would expect now that England can can get the job done for the rest of it. But And then, obviously, you've had some uh, Wales drawing. Um, and then uh, tonight, you had uh, a great game between the Netherlands and Ukraine, which is obviously a really good one to watch. But uh, most things have been kind of overshadowed from well, a sporting perspective as well for that Denmark-Finland game, right, with the um, Christian Eriksen collapse uh, 43 minutes in. Um, pretty distressing to watch, I won't lie. Um, it's pretty distressing to watch something live unfold that was unfolding in front. Um, I, I, I don't really know how to talk about it, to be perfectly honest with you. It's, it, it, it was a pretty stressful scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, I've already... Got a little bit of a attention on Twitter for calling people out for making it about them, so want to avoid then doing that on the podcast. But yeah, it was it was a difficult thing to watch. Uh, I, I think yes to to touch on one of the topics that people have addressed. I think the broadcaster could have maybe done a slightly better job of cutting away sooner when it became clear that it was an incredibly serious issue. But also, you have to be a little bit understanding that it's not a situation that they maybe expect to have. And that you also feel as if people are then also wanting to get sort of information. Um, so it's tough. I can understand why from a producer standpoint, it's not the easiest decision to make and not one that they would have gone into the match thinking, what do we do in the scenario in which one of the players now, maybe in the future now, they will have more of a policy in place for that. But yeah, I mean, the good news is that he seemingly is um, okay. I'm sure he's not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but probably ends his career. Um, I know that he will not be allowed to play for Inter Milan now because Italy has a fairly strict law that does not allow um, uh, athletes to play competitive sports once they have had a serious heart issue or if they are deemed to be at risk of future heart issues. So that is the end of his Inter Milan career, which also means it's going to be incredibly difficult for Inter Milan if he is fit enough and sort of gets passed fit by him some medic somewhere to play football at a high level again. Very difficult to shift because obviously everyone's going to know that they need to get rid of him. So it's sad from him. The good news is that he's seemingly fine. The sad news is obviously the best case scenario, which is seemingly the one that we found ourselves at is still a, a nightmare scenario for him. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think you know, when you look at the the big picture here, he's had a good career. He's made a good amount of money. And it's it's not as if, you know, we talked about this off air. Do you call an injury? It's really not an injury. You know, when Alex Smith broke his leg and wanted to prove everyone wrong and come back and play again in the NFL, he's trying to recover from a horrific injury, but something that was not likely going to be life-threatening moving forward. You know, maybe he rebreaks his leg and he has trouble walking the rest of his life, but this is different. I mean, this is, I don't think in any way 
any person can come out of this and saying, I want to literally risk my life again to continue playing. I mean, there's things beyond playing the sport you love. And, and I get it, you know, I'm sure he loves the hell out of playing, playing, but risking further injury and risking death are two extremely different things. And I, I personally think, I don't know if I would ever even think about wanting to play again um, competitively after that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, and also I, you know, it touches on that other territory where it would feel irresponsible for anyone to allow him to, and that it would feel uncomfortable to watch him play football again. Even if you were told that the scenario of it happening, you know, even if he got, you know, this could have given a clean bill of health and you had medical experts and cardiologists telling you that he should be fine. It would be very uncomfortable to watch him run around on a football pitch. So you know, that is almost certainly the end of his career. And when you look at similar cases, if you look at, um, you know, Fabrice Mwamba in the Premier League, that ended his career. Um, and, you know, very similar circumstances. And then he, you know, and people have been critical, I think, too, of the, the medical treatment that he received. Seemingly the feedback from, and I think everyone involved was that it was, it was pretty top notch, even if some people instantly felt as if they maybe didn't weren't as urgent as they perhaps should have been but seems as if they handled things kind of as well as was supposed to be done so and the fact that he lived i guess proves that point i mean yeah. not only lived the fact that they brought him back right they resuscitated him so yeah i mean that's that's hats off right there i mean that's crazy impressive because i mean they they were working on him for a significant amount of time yeah um, and i know that they said they only used the defibrator on the first attempt but still, I mean, they were doing chest compressions for over 10, 15 minutes. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 amazing that they were able to do what they did. So, yeah. And, and my question would be, obviously, they then eventually decided that the, the players involved were given two options. One was to complete the match at the time in which they did, which was later that evening. The other option would have been to have played the match at noon today. Um I'm of the opinion a little bit that I I think if I'd been involved that I would have wanted to have waited until today for multiple reasons. One, to kind of give you a little bit of time to process it and to, you know, you would have used up a lot of your energy just through the concern and your mind would have just been elsewhere. Also, you'd have hoped that as has eventually been the case that you could have then had more good news come out about him and that might have made you feel more comfortable playing. I'm sure the Danish players feel better today than they did maybe yesterday evening, even when things were looking better once they'd said he'd resumed consciousness. Um, the, the, obviously, both the Danish and the Finnish players voted to play the match that evening. What do you think you would have done? Impossible situation, sort it's, of impossible hypothetical to put yourself into, but... Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a really tough one because obviously the, the kind of footballing world seems a bit split on the scenario. Like Peter Schmeichel even came out... Uh, Peter Schmeigel, sorry, Frank, the other way around. Peter Schmeigel. Uh, came out and he was like, it's disgusting that it was even offered as a choice. But then you've got the Danish captain, which is obviously Kasper Schmeichel, who clearly was pretty incredible in terms of like what you saw on the on the on the pitch as well, in, in consoling like Christian Eriksen's wife and just the, the camaraderie just around. To, everything. Just to clarify, Kasper Schmeichel's not the captain of the, the Danish team. I thought was it? I thought Kasper was. Or is, is it Eriksen? It's, it's Klar Simon. It's, it's Clark. Clark, yeah. I, I mean, both of them were instrumental, but I, I guess in terms of like an influential standpoint. But for me, 
the Danish head coach kind of came out and he said that they would rather have done everything then so that then they can process and understand it, knowing that Ericsson is okay now. And when I, when I first heard that, there was, I, I kind of, I didn't really think about it, but I, I think as he said it, I kind of agreed more with it. The idea that you process a pretty traumatic, emotional up and down day and, Rather than coming back the next day, playing 45 minutes, maybe you have no idea what's going to change or what happens. At least in that moment, you almost know you can play football, I guess. Uh, like, tough decision, complete 50-50, fully understand both aspects. But I can understand the players coming out and I understand the Danish coaches' understanding of like doing it all, just getting it done, then processing after. Yeah, yeah I mean... I'll Go ahead, Frank. I'll... I mean, I'll, I'll hot take a little. I, I I think it's pretty irresponsible of UEFA to to let them play. I I get I get being in that situation as a player and being asked, "What do you want to do?" You're, I mean, you have no idea really. You haven't processed at all what's really happened, and you're you're on such an emotional roller coaster that you're. I I think as an athlete, most people would say like, "Yeah, let's play. We want to play. We want to finish this," but you don't realize it until after. And when you actually sit down and kind of go through it a little more, like how draining that probably was. I I mean, you're talking about playing a match 45 minutes after the captain was consoling Erickson's wife, who at that point believes her husband has died. I, I mean, the emotional drainage of that situation is so strong and it's, it's, you're, you have so much adrenaline that I don't think you realize it at the time, but it clearly affected their play and it clearly affected them. And I, I think, I don't know how you can say you'll be focused, but still be focused, even if you hear he's stable. I mean, you were watching him, surrounding him I, I think as he's getting chest compressions. I, I, I just think, I think UEFA should have stepped in and said, let's just finish this tomorrow. I know you guys want to play but everyone needs to kind of relax, cool down, make sure everything's okay, and let's step back in tomorrow when everyone's a little more rested almost. Uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think that is the decision of the players and, and you know, if, if whatever they wanted to do was the appropriate thing. I do get what you're saying. And, and as I said, I think I would have voted for playing the following day. At the same time, I do understand fundamentally they're not going to be able to process this within 24 hours. They're not going to be able to process this fully within, over the course of the tournament. So there is there is a unfortunate reality that has to be addressed which is either you're going to forfeit the remainder you're either you're withdrawing from the tournament or we have to get these matches completed because when you're never going to be in a, you know they're not going to, the remainder of the tournament this is going to be hanging over the danish team a they've lost arguably their best and most influential player and in addition to that they've gone through a you know an incredibly traumatic experience so I think you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place as UEFA and that giving the players an option and then saying, look, whichever one you want to do is the one we'll do is, is kind of the most sensible solution. Now also, right. Part of it is based on what ended up happening. So because Denmark then lost to a team they would have expected to beat, then you kind of second guessed a little bit and thinking, well, was it right for them to go back on the pitch, which is a bit hard on the, on, on the Finns who even before the Ericsson incident were sort of well in the game. But, you know, there is an element there. If Denmark had gone out and won 3-0, probably everyone would have said, was, well, look, they were motivated and focused as a result of what they'd gone through and, and produced a performance that was sort of fitting of, the, of you know, what had happened to Ericsson. So um, it's tough. 
And it, you know, it also forced not to not that this matters, but it, it forced them to make two substitutions, big ones, because obviously Ericsson had to be replaced, and then their captain Simon Carr was uh, came back onto the pitch, but then said he was going to try playing, but did so saying that he was unlikely. He did not think he was going to be capable of playing, and then he had to be sort of instantly substituted. So. You know, then when they were chasing the game, you've lost two of the three subs that you could make to try and change the match tactically because of this one incident. I think it becomes. Uh, I think once the players, both sides as well. This isn't just Denmark; it's Finland as well. But I, I think when they both request it, it's extremely hard to refuse. Um, you you can't really go against their logic or understanding because the coaches seem on board as well. But I guess the tragic scenario is because there was like a few. There wasn't many updates officially on. Uh, Eric said only that he was doing better and he was obviously stable. There's obviously that tragic scenario where what if that changed overnight and then you're playing next day at noon? There's hypotheticals coming with delaying it longer when you don't know about a condition. Whereas I feel like if the Danish players and the Finnish players knew that the condition was stable, he was you know safe and obviously recovering, then in that moment, there might be the cause to play the game. And it, it, it sounds like that's the, that's the option they take. But... Um, and, and and it's in this obviously this isn't important, but I also felt rather sorry for the the Finnish players because, for example, when they scored, there was a kind of instant celebration that then became very uncomfortable very quickly, and they went from sort of celebrating the goal to sort of very muted congrats sort of congratulations of each other. So it was uncomfortable for, and obviously that you know the incident yesterday put sport and everything else, you know, into context, but. At a certain moment in time, you also have to return to the sort of experience and entertainment of the sport itself, and you didn't then feel sorry for Finland who produced a you know what was a very good result for them, and they were unable to a get any credit for the performance and b celebrated it anyway. But on that note, maybe we, uh, Frank, I know you want you had a non-football topic. I don't know if you wanted to bring that up. If not, we can shift on to our, our interview with Scott Ferguson and our preview of day one of Royal Ascot. Happy to have everyone back. I am, as always, joined by Frank and Sam, but we also have another special guest today in Scott Ferguson, who is going to be giving us a few insights into the racing industry and also helping us to preview day one of Royal Ascot, which I know for Frank and Sam, it's our favorite day. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for the invitation. Very anytime Royal Ascot comes up, I'm uh, very excited by it and uh, very willing to impart some knowledge and share in the excitement of the big week. Yeah, and hopefully we can pick a few winners. Not to put any pressure on you, but so far in our race race previews, we we had the winner of the Grand National and our on our sort of other tips both placed for the Grand National. We had a few big price winners at Cheltenham. So the Derby Epsom was a little bit of more of a disaster for us, admittedly, in the a, a week ago. But uh, no pressure. But we, you might need to deliver a few, few big price winners to to get an invite back. Well, I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll certainly cover enough horses. Where did I isolate <laughs> them as uh, individual winners? That's another story. Well, that's Frank's technique. Frank will throw up about <laughs> seven tips for tips yeah, just, for race. Just blanket the field. Just blanket the field, <laughs> yeah. and you'll be fine. That's, or that's the way we go. Or sometimes I just take on the entire field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was his move. Back in January, Frank's tip was to take, the, it was Tiger Roll versus the field in the Grand National, and his tip yeah. was the field, which technically was a winner, but it wasn't exactly a big price tip. But yeah, Scott, thanks again for joining us. And before we do get into that day one preview, it'd be nice just to 
and now you've got like quite the reputation within the racing industry. And it'd be nice to have a sort of a better background, particularly as you're Australian. So it's interesting to see that you've sort of transitioned. Obviously, Australia itself has a sort of thriving, you know, racing industry that you made the transition from the UK to Australia or vice versa. So if what, yep. what was, how did you get an, in, an initial interest in racing? And then also how did your career kind of transition into racing itself? Okay. Well, uh, uh, having, having a reputation in the industry, I think you're stretching it a bit there, but uh, I'll let you go run with that. Um, my, to be honest, my first, first memory is actually at a race course when I was about three. Um, I was, I remember running around barefoot at Warnable races in the, and it was an old wooden grandstand and I got a splinter in my foot and had to get taken to the, to see the ambulance. Ambulance people would have a big splinter taken on my foot. Um, my, basically all comes from my mum's side. So mum was into it. Her mum was into it. Um, there was some ownership on that side of the family as well. Um, I just always been keen on it. Got, got um, used to go along sort of regularly, either, either trotting or, or gallops um, down in southwestern Victoria. Um in that area and just 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 loved it basically and then as you sort of got older you thought oh how to work out the odds what's all this mean you know just look at the, the one two three the last few runs and just just find it as a um a puzzle that just keeps evolving there's, there's always more layers to it like an onion you can you know you can take it very simply or you can just look deeper and deeper and deeper unfortunately it doesn't get any easier as you go in deeper it actually confuses you a bit more but um <laughs> that's part of the challenge it's, it's not purely well it's not all about the profit um it's the the thrill of the challenge, I think, I, I find part of, I find uh, it's what keeps me going all these years later, uh, which is quite a while now. Um, I've yes, always been always been a punter. Uh, first job after uni was actually going out to work for Mark Reed, um, the, one of the first big bookmakers in a well, sort of one of the big bookmakers in the sort of eighties and nineties, and joined him just before uh, what was that ninety eight ninety nine up in Darwin. Um, learning the learning the ropes up there of you know, properly doing form with computer form and videos and stuff like that stuff I'd try to do myself but um, this is a lot more professional um, seeing what goes on in a, in a big betting house uh, learning their computer ratings and how they deal with customers and learning off winning punters but also a lot of learning off losing punters and seeing what they they did wrong that sort of thing um, moved on from there basically Ever since then, I've been in the in the betting industry in some some way, shape, or form. Um, either in the on the media side, um, writing betting columns, or work work for Betfair for about was that six yeah six years with, as they were growing in Australia, uh, and now working on the sort of racing sort of data supply sort of side. But um, basically, been at either arm's length or heavily involved in the in the racing industry from the betting side for quite a while with the um, odd, odd interest in ownership. Things like that. So um, I just just love the love the sports, love the betting, love the you know, love the breeding, the the spectacle of it. So a lifelong fan. Yeah, and again, I think you're kind of doing yourself a slight disservice there and being quite humble about when I say quite respected within the in the racing industry. I know that even your social media, you know, is quite well followed by a number of you know prominent accounts and stuff. I know that you get you know your opinion is respected. So and when you then give that sort of you know, 20 years of history of working within the racing industry. It's more than most. I'd be interested because you touch on there learning from people who know what they're doing and do things well, but also learning from bad punters. What do you think is the most common mistake you see out of the sort of average punter? Discipline. Just complete, just like a discipline, betting, betting for the sake of it. 
uh, chasing, um, not just just trying to bet sort of everywhere rather than having a focus. Um, you know, go back 20, 30 years, you know, you, you, racing was three, four days a week and you focused, you, fo you, you cover the whole lot then. These days there's no hope anywhere in the world of covering all the racing, um, this, unless, you're based, unless you're following sort of Hong Kong. Um, there's just far too much at all sorts of levels and you're trying to cost, you know, if you're in, let's say, it's, let's say Victoria, you're trying to focus on horses that are coming from the country to run in town and then what runs on a Sunday and there's, and then the jump out trials and everything. And there's just no time to, to, to properly do it. Um, you have to find a niche somewhere, whether it's, you know, whether it's two-year-olds, whether it's, it's stayers or, you know, novice, novice hurdlers or, you know, whatever your fancy is, but it's just very hard to focus. Uh, and then the staking's just, a big part of it. Um, I certainly haven't mastered that part, but I've seen some very average tipsters win well because they stake well, but I've seen plenty of very smart tipsters be shocking and be broke because they're terrible punters because they just don't manage their money well. Um, you can't have one without the other. And that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. Um, that's certainly in there. And that's, it's a hard grind because that's not the fun part. The fun part is tipping winners. The, the, the having the discipline to keep the stake is the, is the very hard part, and that's why two three percent of people make a profit, make a can live off live off the winnings in this game. So you um you kind of mentioned there that there's so much racing. There's trotting. There's jumps. There's flats. There's uh, racing in Hong yep. Kong, Mauritius, wherever you may go. Where do you find your focus in? Do you find a, like a certain age? Do you find a certain type of race? Do you find a certain country? I tended to drift. Honestly, I tend to drift in and out. I prefer the spe the um, the spectacle. So I'm, I'm more of a, um, you know, a group races, big sort of stuff, big meetings sort of thing. Um, I still follow, even though I now I've been living in the UK for uh, well over a decade, 16 years now. Um, I still look at the Australian stuff, but I tend to only tune in for the for the bigger meetings. I'm tuning into Brisbane racing sort of now, but apart from that, I'll do very little um, looking in until it starts warming up in, in Victoria or in September for the, the Everest and, and uh, the Victorian Spring Carnival. Um, over here, jumps, I still have a hard time doing jumps for them, so I'll focus on sort of down towards Cheltenham and some of the bigger events, but heavy ground in January and the freezing cold just doesn't excite me and the and the form's always different come come March because the ground's getting firmer and you don't have those absolute swimmers doing things. So I find that hard and tend to I'll I look at other people who know their stuff a bit more in, in jumps racing. It's on me over here. Um yeah it's just it's trying to sort of channel your stuff to know know when and where to sort of to tune in and, and but if I'm, you know, for all that, I've sort of dedicated some time to right and focusing on these particular races and and give myself the time to go back through videos and, and the form lines, etc. With it, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but it's, uh, it's certainly more enjoyable than doing the form for for you know maidens at Bath on a on a Monday or, or Lingfield or weather stuff. So, so going back to you know you're, you're kind of giving your tips on on being a successful punter and and how to achieve that. I saw that you were the head of education at Betfair for a while. Um, what 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 does that entail? Is that just yep. kind of telling people not to take the odds on shot the first race of Royal Ascot with all of your money, or or is there more <laughs> to it than that? <laughs> um, that was that was such an enjoyable job. Um, so I joined Betfair when I think I was about number one hundred on the payroll, 
um, when they were just they just moved in a big office in in uh, Hammersmith in London, um, just really getting some traction, and they wanted to um, get into Australia, and I just had to be travelling at the time and, and meet up with a few a couple of people, and um, they said, "You want to join us? We'll fly you home and give you get your work visa and sort of stuff." They're, oh, yeah, why not? Um, anyway, after a couple of years, that sort of evolved into a proper a proper role called head of education, and what I'd basically do is teach people how to use the exchange properly. So it wasn't just a wasn't just a bookmaker, but how to back, how to lay, how to you know, work out percentages and work out the maths of doing things and, and trading strategies like you know, football where you start with your back of the draw initially and then after half an hour with nil-nil, the draw starts starts shortening, you can trade out of that and give yourself a position or you know, laying two horses at a race and what the percentages that are. And is, you know, the laying part was foreign to most people. And so, well, actually, it's just flipping the odds. If you're, if you're laying... Excuse me. If you're laying a horse at six to four, you're basically back in the field at four to six. It's just flipping the odds, same fractions, it's flipping the odds and stuff like that. Oh, never thought of that. I don't like this favour, but I'm not sure what's going to back it or what's going to beat it. Well, then just take the whole field to go with it, and you know, just it's the fun of teaching people who couldn't quite get it, and then the penny sort of drops. And oh, okay, I can work with this, and then sort of go on from there. Was, we used to go up and down the country. Um, Beffa had a big high-tech trailer, which would go to, I was, uh, was watching cricket and horse racing and a few other things, so you go to events and we used to run actual education sessions, so we'd have 20 or 30 odd people um, in a room with, with laptops and we'd go and sort of demo cats, play with the night and we'd run through, we'd do it during live football and sort of teach them how to trade and, and do that and we did hundreds of those events up and down the UK, through New Ireland, in Sweden um, and a few other places as well. And um, and it was working from everyone from your complete beginner or your person who went down to bookie and bit cash but didn't actually understand, had no idea how to use technology or an exchange, to promotional staff at events who didn't understand it at all, to legal partners, to finance partners, um, even to professional punters who just wanted not so much the education part, but they wanted to learn how to and understand how to use the exchange faster. So they might have wanted some short, some keyboard shortcuts and stuff like that. And um, little bits and pieces that um, uh, just just help sort of from the from the top through to the bottom. And I, at one stage, I had um, um, I was running some staff sessions and had a couple of few a couple of the IT guys sort of came in, came in because you know your techies are generally pure techies. To have someone who understands racing or betting and is a developer is very rare. They can write their own check for what they get paid, really, because they're just they're just completely different worlds. Um, and then a couple of them sort of came and they went back to their department. They said, this is actually really good. You should do this. And they come more passed on a couple of little, couple of small teams. And out of, at the time, probably 200 staff at Betfair, probably two thirds of them were, or probably 120 were, um, were tech staff. And then they got to their CTO and said, he said, right, I want you to do this for our entire tech team, the whole, entire sort of tech department. And then it just sort of kicked off from there. And that CTO ended up becoming a, the CEO on stage, um, but yeah, just went through because often you don't have that connect between what the customer wants or understands to what the technical people are building and stuff like that. And I'd do a few little quick things on the on the screen. To, oh, how'd you do that? Why did why would someone do that? You know, this is a journey that should be dot 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 dot. And in my in my um, you know project plan, when you're writing specs and stuff like that, and that's not a, that's not how a punter does it. Why would a punter do that? Um, and it just yeah, found it fascinating. So I got within in there, and then you know, sort of spread from there. I still get recognised 
um, from time to time. People recognise the name. They came to one of my one of my events fifteen years ago and things like that. And it's yeah, it's, uh, yeah that was really enjoyable going up and down the country for the better part of the time. But the company's well and truly changed changed since then. It's been more um, focused on shareholders and that sort of thing. But uh, so be it. That was that was a fun time when I first yeah, came. Yeah, sounds fascinating. You you obviously touched on there trying to educate people about the concept of laying. How integral do you think yep. being being willing to lay something is to then being a successful punter? Like, can you have a successful betting strategy that just relies on backing things to win? You can. Um, there are so many different ways ways to win. You, some of the most obscure sort of plans and, and theories and stuff like that, that people come up with. Um, excuse me. Ultimately, it comes down to having discipline and just knowing your niche knowing your little area and sticking to it. Um, but if you want to get involved in every race, then you're going to have to be able to be laying and things like that. Um, yeah, there are guys out there who will just focus on, I want to have you know, any, any favourite that's odds on. I want to basically, I'll go through it and some I'll back, some I'll, if it's an even money shot and I rate an even money shot and it's four to six, well, then I'll lay it. If it's the other way around, I think it's four to six and it's evens, then I'll back it. You know, it should be, it should work both ways. Um, the pros will, pros will say this is you know, this is my price and two ticks over over it, so I'll, I'll back it and two ticks under it or lay it. Maybe a bit wider margin, but that sort of thing. It's it's that price is very important. And um, to say oh, no, I'm not going to lay, well, if you're betting on one horse, you're effectively laying the rest of the field anyway. So it's not really that thing. You know, it's a bit different if you're you're laying you know ten twenty to one shots because that's a, a big risk but not a great reward. Um, but certainly if you're at the finer end of the market, you've got to be prepared to take on a paper. Yeah. yeah bookmakers, bookmakers generally tend to make money yeah. and their job is late well, Do you think then, for example, and, and it's this is over, oversimplifying it then, if you just had, and I know there are people out there who fundamentally almost have this strategy, if you were just going to lay fairly odds on favorites consistently, is that does that lead to a successful strategy? Every very simple system such as lay all favourites or back all 10 to 1 times and stuff like that, there's margin involved and I think you'll eventually fail. The trick is identifying those even money favourites that should be 2 to 1 and the 2 to 1 shots that should be evens. Yeah. Or, or whatever price. 10 to 1 shots that should be 20s and 21 should be 10s. 2s on shots should be 5s on shots. Now, some of the best bets I've ever seen have been 2s on shots when they should have been 10s on and stuff like that. So it's it's just knowing your, knowing your thresholds and where, where you're... The area you're prepared to bet. If you want to bet between you know, one to two and six to four, then fine, because because you your risk reward is you know, it's, it's pretty much yours or mine. Fairly similar the whole way through. Um, if you're getting into um, playing with fire and starting to lay, you, know, you want to lay horses double figures, then you're going to need a pretty big account, yeah. pretty good balance in your account, because you will get burned occasionally, and you only need two or three of those in quick succession. <laughs> to the, Ooh, so I think we've all had that feeling. <laughs> so. So you talked about being able to yeah. identify, you know, the odds on that should be two to three to one and vice versa. How, how do you go about that? Are you reading heavy into, yep. into the form? Are you watching the races on like on the video? You know, what, what, what do you use to make that judgment call? It's a, it's a bit of everything. Um, really, it's, it's data. You're looking at sort of sectionals and, and previous records of, you know, what's, what's happened in this sort of race before at this level. It's who's involved in the horse. Is it coming from the top? A top stable and connections. Do they have a track record of doing this, or is it someone that's um, a smaller stable who might see the bright lights and not be able to pull through? Um, 
you know, what's the what's the consistency of this horse? Is it you know, is it just does it just flatline? Is it is it progressing gradually, or is it a horse that's you know, as flat as the seeds? It comes up on the bridle with a furlong to go, comes up outside the the leader, and then just doesn't go on. So it trades in running at about fives on, and just never can, doesn't continue. Um, I loved I loved doing videos. I was old school. I started doing that before the world went heavily data. Um, data centric, um, and I've certainly done a hell of a lot of that for design stuff. Um, but that's that's just part of it. You know, without, you, know, you can unless you've got sort of clocks and sectionals that coming up on the screen, you need something else to go with that. The the, the eye, and when you when you're looking at particular variations in track, over it's as it's easy, it's pretty easy in Australia and the and the US um, with times because the tracks are are all flat and and very similar and very similar over here. There's such, you, know, you have very slight variations in the going because you have chalk services to sandy services to much harder services uh, in various parts of the country. Um, you have downhill courses, you have left-hand courses, you have right-hand courses, you have against the camber, you have bundulating courses. Uh, it's it's tricky. You just, it's not apples with apples the whole time. Um, and there's lots of sort of software and traits and stuff like that. You take, you know, um, switchback courses such as Epsom where you go left, then you go right or um, and things like that. It's just or an up a stiff course where they go uphill at the end and things like that. It's 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 quite tricky. It's not um it's it's not a simple simple battle. And over here, you're fighting the big battle of trying to get hold of data because they don't have any money in racing over here. So no one wants to put it up for free. There's no national tote or a tote of significance like um like in the US or Hong Kong or stuff like that. So the data's not out there for free, giving you you know just just reams and reams of information to to work with. Um. So it's a it's a fun battle trying to be able to afford to get all the information in front of you and then have the time to process it. Um, thankfully, they're now up to forty eight hour declarations. It was a, that was a battle to get to that. It was only what four years ago now. I think they had that. It used to be the night before. I thought, oh, the grief, how do you do this? Particularly when you got something like the Royal Ascot coming up. It wouldn't be so bad in the Melbourne Cup carnival because you got Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. You just got some time to get over the hangover and then go back and, and look. But if you're trying to get serious on punting, you've got to stop halfway through your day. And then get on to the next day, or you put all your bets on, and then you focus on the next day's work, and it takes half the fun out of it. But anyway, it is what it is. All the people over here are used to it. Uh, I think it could be done better if you scrapped it and all and, re, and redesigned it. But um, hey, I tried. I was in the horse rating, racing betters forum over here for a while, which was set up by the BHA. Um, that's that's hard yards trying to get through. There's a lot of racing industry everywhere. There's a lot of stubborn people involved that have got there's too many noses in the trough to, to get things get things achieved quickly well i think it'd be interesting maybe to when we wrap up to to get some of to get insights into what your suggestions are as to how all of that could be improved because i think that's a really interesting topic but we've touched on i guess a number of things how you prepare for big races and also the idea of what do you do with an odds on favorite in a race and i think it all kind of naturally takes us on to the first race of royal Ascot, which is the uh, Queen Anne Stakes, in which you have Palace Pier at a trading between two to five and four to nine in most places. I mean, you're going to do well to find, you might still be able to find one to two in places, but you you got to look hard to find that. What's your feeling? Obviously, it's, you know, seven, one, seven out of eight races. Its only defeat was at Ascot at and for the Champions Day. Very different conditions in that it was on soft. So not at all. He's a he's a darn good horse. Um, this race always always brings me back to um, 2012 when I was oh. 
uh, I helped out a uh, Aussie tour group that came across because that was the year Black Caviar came over. And of course, all the Aussies are very parochial saying, you know, Black Caviar is better than Frankel, da, da, da. Um, we're in a hosp big hospitality thing down at about at the edge, at the end of the um, the grandstand, but still about a furlong from the line. And we're right at the point where Frankel said go and won by, uh, was it 11 or 14 lengths or something like that? He, he just destroyed Acceleration, who's an extremely good horse. And everyone's jaws just dropped. Like, oh, <laughs> that was the ultimate wow moment. Uh, it just, he just absolutely destroyed destroyed the field that day in the Queen Anne and um, away he went. Um, Palace Piers, potentially the best winner since then. Um, I'm not expecting him to go out and do that, but he's, you know, he's supposed to be the best. Certainly this distance, he's the best horse in best flat horse in training. Uh, he's darn good. Um, certainly at least in Europe. This is a, these are prime conditions for him. Um, his biggest three winning margins have been on good, good to firm going. Um, none of these really hold a candle to him, to be honest. Um, the rest of the field I see is quite even, but Palace Pier is, he's, he's a superstar. I mean, do you, you think two to five is, is fair value, effectively? Uh, potentially. It's not, it's not really my price to be sort of lumping on. Um, but if anyone's of the, um, of the, there's a few, a, a few sort of, um, very, very big ballsy sort of punters over the years that have loved odds on favorites. I'm not sure how many of these guys are familiar with. There's a New Zealand guy called Steel Balls. It's a good name. <laughs> uh, about 20 years ago. About 20 years ago, he was famous back in the All Blacks and, and some very odd, very long odds on horses. Um, but like most, most of those sort of punters, he eventually, uh, end up doing his nuts um there's another one over here called harry harry findlay yeah he's written a book he's a bit of a, bit of a name um and there was another called the fireman uh back in the 70s in the in the betting rings of australia as well um that puts you know that's just six figures on odds on odds on shots and and generally collect but uh like i tell people in the old bet for education days if you're you know betting 105 backing things at 105 you need 19 out of 20 of them to win just to break even just to break even that's a very hard. Wow, it's a very hard thing to uh, make profit on, but it can be done if you think they're all one hundred and one shots. But that's the that's the point of the value. Does that mean for a race like this, is it a stay away? Is it just you think the the, or are you looking el elsewhere for each way bets? And... No, probably look. There's eleven eleven declared, so I think there's some decent, probably some each way value here. I think the rest of there's not a great deal between, um, and I certainly think there's a few marks against the uh, the ones at the front of that market. You know, you, you have plenty of options here with. Um, without favourite markets or just just standard each way at prices and um, bookmakers love particularly the first race of a, of a carnival or, or festival as they call it over here. Um, they love throwing out the offers to basically lock you in for the day. So you probably get four, possibly even five places with certain bookies. You might get a bit less in value in the price, but it's it's worth sort of looking around and taking taking the best offers um, you can on on each way terms. But uh, I shall pop it over to you guys and see what you come up with and anything else before I come back and uh, with possibly a couple of big prices. I mean, I'll give away my tactics already, which is in a race like this, particularly on the on the opening race of Royal Ascot. I love nothing more than do, throwing Palace Pier into a couple of doubles. And so that's that's my general tactic, is that Palace Pier is just going to be the backbone of some other bets, which can go... There's been some disasters with this approach. Sometimes mm -hmm. it just gives me an interest in a race in which I think the odds-on favorite is likely to win. <laughs> so... Rather than look for value elsewhere, and I'm a bit like you, it's difficult to see. It's difficult for me to pick out one of the other horses and think I can get really good, a solid bet there each way. That that's my personal approach. But Frank and Sam will be well aware of that particular tactic of mine. 
it's yeah it's it's an interesting one right having having a long shot in the curtain raiser of the whole festival because you can really start pretty badly in all of this but scott just going back to your point about frankel i was actually working at labrooks at the um on the course and um on that on that day and i remember just seeing it the second queely said go the response was instantaneous it was so incredible to watch but i i took 10 grand bets and they said it was the easiest thousand pounds they've ever made and it was the quickest thousand pounds they've ever made so they've set themselves up for the entire tournament but well tournament but it was great to watch and it was great to see such an atmosphere around a horse but um yeah it's pretty special to see that kind of thing but i i i kind of agree with what you were saying it's pretty odd seeing like a four to nine shot because you actually look at the field behind it and it's interesting because you you look at palace piers lockinge win and no one's really run since then and that one, like Lady Bothort, won such an incredible race in second. Lopoy Fernandez ran a pretty poor race in that one. So it's a bit awkward to look at Palace Piers' recent form and see what it's running against now. But I think you're looking at arguably Europe's top miler at the moment. And I think four to nine is a good bet. There's a slight risk about things like Order, Order of Australia because it's um, it's a little bit more seasoned than the rest, maybe. But for me, I I think it's pretty difficult to look past Palace Pier. I think you're looking at one of Europe's best horses and really an exciting horse. All the connections to Tory immediately after that lock-in said that this was the target. So I think this is prepped. It's ready to go. And I, I, I think it's actually a pretty solid bet for the opener. Frank, what's your what's your play? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's a horse that you want to mess with. Um, but, you know, with it being so short and I don't really like either of the O'Brien horses that much, it does then give you some value down down low for maybe a nice each way. Um, the one that I kind of was interested in was Sir Busker at an each way. Uh, you can get him at like 25, 30 to one. He has course and distance form at Ascot. Uh, he run won the Royal Hunt Cup. I think it was last year or the year before. Um, I forget now with all of COVID. I, I think it was that last year. year yeah. But um, he also has decent form against Palace Pier. Um, albeit it was in uh, Champions Day on soft ground, but he was only about a length or half a length behind Palace Pier in that race as well. Came back this year, um, was third to Oh, This Is Us, who then went on to win that nice race in Epsom. Epsom. Um, so I, I think it's it's a decent each way. At, you know, If you can get 30 to 1, you know, that's, that's a decent price for something that might sneak in at third. So yeah, he, other than that, though, I kind of, I'm going to do what Eddie said probably and maybe throw some doubles, but. Yeah, what had a point for Subusky, all his, his best performance has been in the big open straight track. So Ascot, Newbury, Newmarket, New York. Um, so he does, does love a big straight and yeah, I've got him in there as a, as potential. Um, the one I like is actually the rank outsider, a bit of a, a bit of a price. Um, Pogo. Just a, a small H way. I think we're not going, we're not going serious here. Um, ran third in the Royal Hunt Cup here last year, the higher end of the weights, but this is a big step up. Um, it's been competitive in a few weaker group races. Um, 31 lengths defeat in the lock-in is a concern, but the stable put it down him not liking the ground. Um, and he, but he's never been that dire before on, on rain back to track. So take it to the grain of salt. But uh, if he'd run to his previous start rating, he'd have been about four and a half length third. Um, six, six to one each way, you know, you're, not, uh, you're not taking much of a... No, you, it's that risk premiums in there um, at 66. And so um, I'll have a little little bit on that. But um, I think the two big favourites of the day, Palace Pier and Batash, will probably be in some pretty pretty lumpy doubles, I think. Um, bookies love to see a favourite go down on the first day at Cheltenham. All this, um, I'm not sure you yeah. find many others to, to throw in there for the day, at least, at least for me, but certainly that double, I think, would be very, very popular. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing Frank's talk about Patash. Mm. Actually, he's got a, a like, love affair I with that I love the horse. sounds of that double, Scott. <laughs> I love the sounds of it. And before we move on to the next race then, just because you've brought it up, the Black Caviar Frankel debate then. Where do you stand? Yep. Oh, Frank was the best thing I've ever seen. Absolutely. Black, Black Caviar was done good. Um, she was um, injured and... Uh, you know, lane based on the post and it wasn't the best ride by Luke Nolan, which it's a, it's a shame because basically the, the, the lazy POM um, seems to think that was the best of her and that was nowhere near the best of her. Uh, but she, she wasn't as good as that. No, she was darn good and she's the best of that brigade, but Frankel was probably the best horse ever seen, certainly in the drug-free era. Um, you, know, you can have that argument in the States when, uh, when horses on, Let's just say I'm not sure Secretariat's blood would have passed passed tests in the in this day and age, but um, yeah. Anyway, oh, there's there's some click there's some click there's some clickbait for us there. <laughs> yeah. We can get into a whole debate. <laughs> and speaking of American horses, then I guess that's also a natural progression then onto the second race of the day, which is the Coventry Stakes. Delivered Wesley Ward is saying all the right things about Coffee Maker. Currently around three to one. 100 to 30, 4 to 1 in some places. Only raced once on dirt. Says it's taken extremely well to to grass. Says it's his best chance of the festival. Always difficult with Wesley Ward because obviously he's produced some spectacular winners in the past, but he is always very, very positive about almost all of his horses coming into our last. He's he's like a, he's like a Waterhouse in Australia. Just will not. There's never a horse that can't that can't win or is you know it's busted, uh, just breaking out of a skin to win or stuff like that. Um, his Wesley record gets made out to be a superstar sort of trainer. He's, I think, part of his PR. His record isn't that great. He's made out. You take out his winners with um, Strike That Tiger at 33s and Contabatero at 20s, and he's actually not in profit at all. Not even close to it um, with, his, with his runs over here. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's two big, big price winners. He's had, it's, now he's had a few decent fillies and things like that, but take those two out and he's. He's down quite a bit. Um, his horses are overbet. Well, truly overbet. He's throwing a filly in against some, some decent colts. I don't think there's any superstars here, but um, oh, it's a tough ask. It's a tough ask, this one. Interesting. That might be disappointing for Frank because Frank likes uh, nothing better than betting the American horse. <laughs> the, the chance to watch some incredibly yeah. ugly silks storm away in the Coventry Stakes. But... I'm glad you noticed those silks. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, um, American silks are never the most attractive, but if then you're not tempted by coffee maker and i think the reasons you just laid out are pretty good to stay away from a relatively short price favorite given the fact that you've got a you know second and the sort of rest of the field at best you're getting 6 to 1 13 to 2 15 to 2 so you know bigger price on everything else what tempts you then you i mean there's some some impressive you know which is standard for the coventry stakes you know horses that haven't had many runs Many of them have had wins, so it's 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 a difficult one from a form perspective to pick out. Yeah, it's a funny mix here. Um, we don't want to don't want to see another Nando Parado come up, or at least at least not if I'm not on it. Um, the second favourite, which is Masetto, looked quite promising. Pretty strong Irish form after Luke in the field to win at Navan Debu ran second to very talented Castle Star. Um, it was actually looking forward to lining up in this, but um, they decided to keep him in in Ireland. Uh, but he was started favourite, but. Um, that day, I thought he was beaten by Paul Wright. Um, the, the apprentice, Gavin Ryan, aboard, tried to basically run through a pack. A, it was only about a seven-horse race and tried to go through gaps that simply weren't there. 
um, and he got left up behind the winner. And I think that's the big problem here. The horse is good enough, but they're bringing the stable apprentice over to ride it in a Group One race. Um, it's new connections to the last run. The kid's winning just six percent this year. Um, that that scares me. This horse is good. Um, the Ascot Straight Royal Ascot meeting in in well, it's a Group Two race. Perhaps the world to call it a Group One, but um, it's you know, the best two-year-old race of the year so far. Um, I think he's going to get lost down the straight. I can't have any confidence at all with a jockey like that aboard. There's there's plenty to choose from. Um, a stable lord is one thing, but your big chance of winning a winning a group race at Royal Ascot and making a stallion out of a horse at just their third start, um, I think it's a big. That's a that's a shocker. Um, the one I quite like is actually right at the top, Angel Blur. At about twenties, I think last time I saw it. Yep. Um, he. Sorry, just put my notes off. Um, Blue Blow by Dark Angel out of Assisted Highland Reel. Um, shown steady progress, won two or three starts, and looked to relish the step up to six furlongs last time, running away to win by one and three quarter in a conditions race at Pontefract. Um, he's not from the usual juvenile production lines of Coolmore or Richard Hannon stables. Um, I think he's a huge price at twenties. Um, you'll you'll give that a shake. Each way of you know, you get four places there in places at twenties. I think it's a fantastic bet. Interesting. I'm look. I'm looking at somewhere around the. I'm a bit scared by the the negative messaging coming out of the out of John Gosden. So that's put me off a few of the. I mean, he's got two horses right uh, towards the top of the market. It scares me a little bit. So I'm I'm tempted to lean towards the organizer who. It's one run, one looked looked decent. It's rather a decent figure going off racing post range. It was a, it was a good good winning figure, and he's changed. And it, was, it was good enough to get high clear high class indications in and, and, and snap him up for that, which is always promising. They're not, um, they're not mugs there. So, um, breeding's a bit, um, uh, what is it? Lowbrow, um, cheap, um, would, would surprise, but, um, yeah, that's, that's the horse doesn't know that. Um, if, if it's fast, it's fast. There's plenty of, there's plenty of very fast horses that had, uh, ordinary parentage, parentage. Indeed. Yeah. Frank, then are, are you going to buck the trend here? This is the toughest race. It, it, it's there is so much that just like hits my heart with this race. So you have Acropolis, who is out of Churchill, and you know I have very fond memories of Churchill at Ascot. So um, from what I've heard, it's a huge horse, and O'Brien is very hot on it. Um, he says it's one of his best two-year-olds. But uh, I mean, O'Brien says a lot about a lot of horses, and a lot of them end up. Yeah. It's a stud operation. Yeah. Every everyone that runs in the Coventry's uh, their best two year old two year old colt of the year. So yeah, um, that's that's grain of salt ter- pinch of salt territory. Yeah. Um, so I'm obviously going to be on Coffee Maker for for some. Uh, the other horse I like at a little better price is uh, Berkshire Shadow. Um, at, also out of Dark Angel, um, like the other pick, um, which nice, which was a nice win that debut. Yeah. And, and he, he beat, um, what's the other horse that's in here that he actually beat, uh, Gisburn, Gisburn. Right? Yeah. Who then went on to yeah. win their next race. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have a horse who's one, one race, one win. Um, you got Oshie Murphy on board. Uh, you can do the dark angel double with him and Batash back to back if you really wanted to, uh, it's not a bad double, but I, I think at, tr- you might not want. You might not want to do that. At, at, yeah. at twenty to one, I think there's a lot of value there for a first time out winner um, yeah. with a good jockey on board, good pedigree. So that would kind of be my other one. You missed the start slightly on um, 
in, in that race at Newbury, so I won't want to do that again. But he's he's certainly got talent. Um, yeah, he came home, came home quite nicely. He sort of stayed stayed away from the trouble that, that Gisborne got in. Um, and Amazonian Dream, I think the horse caused the interference and sort of came around the side and thought, okay, yeah, six furlongs going to do do him quite nicely. Um, interesting thing with the Dark Angel, I've owned two, I've had shares in two horses over here, um, and the second one, well, they're both Dark Angels, and the second the second one um, won the nice handicap at York yesterday called First Folio. Oh, nice. Um, got a tiny share in, in it. It's one of the big owners' groups ones. Uh, they have four thousand shares, but. Uh, Bought him out of France and so like, not sure how good this one is. And he suddenly goes and wins a big Saturday handicap. But oh, hello! <laughs> nice. I like this breed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a pleasant surprise. I got, actually have one more I wanted to ask you about. What do you think about Ebro River? Because um, both both the races it's won, it's it's hung both ways actually. Uh, and the, the last race it, yeah. it hung badly to the left and still stayed on really well to finish. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it kept yeah. on going. Um, Easy winner of that, fluffed the start, got a dream run up the up the rail, which is normally the place to be on the five furlong track at Sandown. Um, and then just, yeah, got to the front and then drifted, drifted away. Needs to improve his manners. Um, his best two runs have been on soft tracks after his first one, but that might just be natural progression. That might have nothing to do at all with, with the um, with the going. That just might be coincidence. Uh, he's definitely got talent. He's quick. Um, Hugo Palmer's pretty sharp. He's not, not quite at the top of the... Top of the tree, but he's certainly no certainly no slouch. He's got some good ones. Sam, what's your uh, what's your bet for the race then? So um, you've already mentioned him, actually, Frank. I'm actually going for the Acropolis in this one. Um, looking at kind of the trends and the, the way O'Brien's run this race, he's actually had a pretty good strike rate. He's had 34 runners, 12 winners, seven placings. But you look at the last decade and he's had um, Caravaggio, who then went on to win the Commonwealth as well. So good, good pedigree there. Arizona, War Command, Power. Like they've all had some pretty good two-year-olds that have just kind of gone on to win this race, and I think that O'Brien has some pretty good form in it. But um, he, Acropolis won a pretty handy maiden, a Listol. Uh, what was nice about the race was when when the jockey asked for something from it, it kind of delivered, so it was driven along quite nicely. Like obviously, Ryan Moore coming on, so it's a pretty nice booking now. Um, I think it'll be a jump up for it, for the horse, but uh, I, I, think, I think it's trading about 11s at the moment, maybe 11 or 12s. But I, I, I think there's some good value for that kind of jump up and trip. But um, yeah, I'm going for the Acropolis. Okay. A um, couple of others I want to throw a comment in on. Uh, Tolstoy, brilliantly, um, brilliantly named by Kingman out of War and Peace. That was a great, <laughs> great name there. Um, he won a, yard, a novice at Yarmouth and but needed a few strikes of the whip um, on debut, which is, I would have thought was pretty rare for a Gosden horse. Um, so he looked to be all out there. Um, the form behind him hasn't held up. Um, but tick, tick, tick is in the Gosden stable. It's got impeccable breeding and Frankie gets on. Um, but I just think he'll probably end up a bit short. Uh, and Gisborne, we sort of touched on there. Frank, uh, was unlucky on debut and then just bolted up by six lengths next time. And that was hand and heels. Uh, gorgeous looking horse, chestnut with big sort of white blades in his nose and, and front hooves. Uh, mighty impressive. And he'll be, he'll be right up in the bedding. And um, from the Hannon stable, who uh, have been known for a long, long time, be very good in juveniles. Interesting. I guess with that, we can move on to uh, a horse that's likely, I think, probably to shorten up over the course of the next 48 hours and certainly on the day, which is to look ahead to the Kingstand Stakes, where you have Batash making a return to Ascot. Currently, 15 to 8, I think you can get in 2 to 1 in a few places if you look a bit hard. Um, Winter Power, 9 to 2, second favorite. Oxted, 15 to 2. All the rest are 8 to 1 or bigger. Getting a bit long in the tooth, Batash, but also 
maybe now doesn't have the blue point hoodoo at uh, at Ascot now, so sort of seems to be a a class above most of its rivals, and there might actually be value in it at this sort of price. What what are, what are your feelings, Scott, on on Batash in that's, this race? That's that's pretty much my feeling. There, there could be value here. Um, my notes were quite simply a sprinting superstar, and if he's near near his best, they don't catch him. Um, but this is a living, breathing animal, not a robot. And things can go wrong. Last season, he went three for three with no spectators allowed. Uh, other case, he's got a bit worked up and not fin- not finished the job. Although it's a bit harsh for Alaska, he ran second to Blue Point twice, and Blue Point was darn good. Uh, now, seven year old, he's only won once from four runs of Alaska. Uh, he was unplaced two year old twice, second to Blue Point, and then won last year. Um, and last year's three wins, they were all at least six points below his career best racing post ratings. Um, so whether that's a, that's all we need to do, or to, as he tapered off slightly from previous years, um, we expect him to carry on the form of last season. The query queries can any rival step up to challenge him? There's a you know, there's the odd speck of form or a bit of a bit of um, promise down the bottom. It might see a horse rate step up to that sort of rating, um, but ultimately he sets the sets the benchmark, and, and seven up all is quite attractive. What do you, um, what do you, I, I guess, like you say, some people stepping up to a seven year old. What do you think of then the three year old in Winter Power? Obviously, second favorite, a pretty exciting horse with the uh, win at the Dante Festival. Like, what's your yeah, thoughts she's, on Winter? No, she's just completely changed. She's like, she, she finished last behind 33 to one behind you, better believe it, in September. And then since then, she's racked up three PBs in a row with a, a group three and two listed races. Um, not sure what's changed. Uh, she bolted in York last time and was ahead of Atalas Bay, who won impressively the other day. Um, yeah, the scurry yesterday. So against the 2020 version of Atash, um, she's right in it. She's short, no, she's fairly short in the market, though. I'm not sure I'd be too keen to jump on any shorter price, but uh, Easterbys are flying at the moment. Frank, then, are you sticking with Batash? I, I can never not stick with Batash. I mean, it's just too much excitement. I, I just... I love watching Batash race and I'm willing to stick with it until the wheels fall off, you know, at this point. <laughs> you fall off cliff. Yep. At least it's a winning cliff horse rather than a cliff horse. You're just expecting it to win, to win. And he's back in again and again and again. It promises yeah. and promises and promises and never gets there. Um, what do we think of the American horses? Extravagant Kid and Maven. Yeah. Extravagant Kid obviously is getting a boost now with Frankie Dettori on board. Yeah. It, it looked good. Now. I, I don't know. I mean, this is actually a great question for you is how how much do you take in these these maiden races? A maiden, like it. Do you so respect maiden rather than maiden? Yeah. Ma- maiden, sorry. <laughs> do you respect the form or or because it's always tough to read there? There are tricky times of the year. You know, you're you're traveling the horse yeah. a long way. How much stock do you take into those wins? That's you know, something I've, I've written in a couple of things. It's uh, you, Again, you have to say, oh, really? I'm not sure. There's been so many over the years that have gone there and had some brilliant sort of race, and then they come back to the UK and they're like, you know, that's five legs behind that according to the numbers, or just the numbers are wrong. Um, I sort of had down that, uh, where are we? You know, American Raider won the Ridge Alcourse win, Alcourse Sprint and Dubai World Cup, nine ahead of Acclam Express and Equilateral, um, but the two clear favourites in the night clearly underperformed. Before that, his best his best performance was running fourth in the British Cup to sprint behind glass slippers. Um, given he's now an eight-year-old, he's playing with the house's money and having a roll of dice. Um, Ryan Moore probably said, why don't you send him to Royal Ascot? You know, you've, you've won plenty here. Have a crack. Um, and as far as I know, it's, it's um, the trainer's first runner in the UK? I believe so, yeah. Brennan Walsh? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, 
you know, that's probably a probably a um, a reconnaissance mission for coming come back with something next year. But while this horse is in proper, why not have a crack? Um, yeah, if Frankie's on it. Yeah, who knows? Moore's uh, Moore's gone the other way. Um, it's gone towards Keep Busy, who I actually thinks is a decent each way chance. Um, yeah, Maidan's. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you can't quite take it on face value. I think. Yeah. Funny things happen over there. Yeah, and you you mentioned obviously this the second American yeah. horse is Wesley Ward's one of his three runners at the festival. I think. Yep. Um, Maven, who won at Chanty, won a Group Three in France. Not done a tremendous amount since then. Won a, I think, a four-runner race at Keeneland, but it's difficult. Um, it kind of touches a lot of bases for me in the sense that I watched its race at Chanty. Uh, a fourteen to one might be a fair price, and you never know with Wesley Ward because he does, as we've also said, he has the tendency occasionally to have some sort of bigger price horses perform quite well. So, as an each-way bet, if you're fourteen to one or maybe slightly bigger, because it seems to be potentially even drifting slightly i think it could be it could be of interest but yep it's difficult to have too much confidence oh yeah four four wins all come after decent different spells um first career 71 days 343 days 211 days um this is going to be two months so that that probably ticks that box um but other races i'm not real sure like you know, that group three at, at Shanti, um, you know, got beaten a long way at, at uh, was that Kentucky Downs last year in grade three and another race at Saratoga. Um, how good is he? I'm not sure on this one. Um, I'm just not convinced he's that sort of class. And and the only, uh, I may be wrong, but I think Wesley Ward's only only winner outside of two or three-year-old classes, Concha de Patero. Well, she might have been made a three-year-old three filly, actually. Um, I think they're... they're they're all two or three yards. I might be wrong in that, but it's certainly the only ones I remember. Um, he's probably desperate to break that, break that cycle to have a crack. But um, yeah, there's some pretty good ones ahead of him. But he might be there. American Pharaoh over over six furlongs, uh, over sort of five furlongs is pretty unusual. Would have thought, but it hasn't stopped him so far. Yeah, and I will say my probably my bet of the day then would be to pal- the Palace Pier Batash double. And just hope then you've you've kind of bol- you've yep. boosted a little right. bit of value in in uh, in Batash, and you get you get the the possibility of maybe the sort of banker of the the festival combined with a sort of legacy bet almost, and hope that it delivers once again. Yeah, well, yeah, some horses just keep on coming back to the same place and, and doing it over and over. A um, couple of no- other notes I had I had sort of question marks over Winter Power, um, but I think it's more to do with price that I said before, and it's. it's Three sharp improvements, and not sure why. Um, Oxhead's uh, just been a bit random since he won the July Cup. I haven't, he's, he's come back to five furlong for the first time. Um, his best RPR racing post rating would match Batash's best of last year, um, but he hasn't been anywhere near that of late. Um, so he needs basically all the planets in alignment. Kayamoro ran a length second to Batash in the Nunthorpe last year, but hasn't done much since flopped in the car and the flying five um she gets her conditions here and dry track after uh, avoiding the heavy at haydock but um, i'm not convinced on her um a couple of decent prizes i thought keep busy um progressive filly trained by john quinn who knows how to win a big sprint race um she ran second in the in one of the new races the palace of holyrood house handicaps last year um it's gone up 12 pounds of running since Slightly disappointing in the last two. Um, both of those were heavy. That was the Flying Five and then the Pre-Debay. Um, 
has Ryan Moore aboard, which is probably due to the Coolmore connection because it's actually owned by Michael Tabor's wife. Um, I think it's each way chance at around, what have we got here, 20s. Um, and the other one, I thought you better believe it might be a decent price uh, as well. Same with Ackland Express, ran third in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile behind Wesley Ward's Golden Powell. Um, won, the, won the Flying Children's last year, group two at 41, beating Sacred, who was you know, pretty good guineas filly, and, and also Winter Power, who came dead last that day. Uh, but then flopped in a, in a group three at Shanti uh, behind Sueza, who's one of the leading chances in the Commonwealth Cup on Friday. Um, he started six to five favour on that day, so he was pretty heavily fancied. Um, no obvious excuse for the run, uh, but the, it's so out of character, you know, take the stable confidence to run here as a sign that solved the issue, uh, not just going blindly. Um, likely race, not sure if it's stable preference or that of the owners, but um, they're going, they've got... Um, where are we? We've got Rowan Scott on rather than Tom Marquand. Um, I know he's a leading leading jockey from the stable, but uh, I would have would have punted for Marquand. But anyway, so be it. Um, so twenties and about twenties and sixteen, some of that, possibly an each way shot there, or chuck him in a trifecta behind Batash. Interesting. And I guess in terms of trying to read into the form, things get a little bit easier in the next race in the St James's Palace Stake, because at least you've got a race here where there's a lot of overlapping form horses that have raced against each other in the past. Poetic Flair leads the market. It won the 2000 Guineas, finished a close second in the, the Irish 2000 Guineas. You have Most of Death at 9 to 2, just behind Highland Avenue 11 to 2, Battleground 13 to 2, Lucky Vegas 7 to 1, Chindit 17 to 2, and then all the rest are 10 to 1 or bigger. Scott, what are your feelings? It's a good, it's a good race. Um, Traditionally, favourites race, um, something like 12 of the last 19 have been won by horses 11 to 4 or shorter. Um, and there's been no winners over 10 to 1 for something like two decades. Uh, you know, some very good horses here. Um, the issue, you know, you've got Poetic Flair as a great horse for, for Jim Bolger. Um, you know, he keeps he keeps backing him up. I think he's fourth run in 45 days or something, which wouldn't be a big deal in Australia, but it's um, it's very odd, unusual for over here. Um I think Jim Bolton knows what he's doing. He's nearly a hundred years old, um, but he's, he certainly knows what he's, he certainly knows what he's doing. Uh, take that on trust. Um, he's yeah won the two thousand years at Newmarket, ran sick in the soft in the French version. Then was beaten ahead by uh, Max Sweeney basically what, a week later or something. Um, he's got to get close to the forms of the board. Um, seven and two. Um, the the Irish have a good contingent, and I'm not even touching the the Aidan O'Brien ones. Uh, Lucky Vega is just. Which is super solid, third at Newmarket, fourth at the Curra, uh, in the West, which is supposed to be a bit too wet for it. He's um, bound for a stud campaign in Australia. He's already been sold off by the by Yulongs to uh, to go to stud, so this is probably his last race. Um, he's already won a he won the um, which one was it? One of the group ones last year. He won the um, which one was it? One of the ones in Ireland last year as a two year old. Um, the Phoenix, um, but they'd love a love a three year old. Another three-year-old uh, win for him as well. A group one to take him to start. Uh, and also Thunder Moon. Thunder Moon was... There was plenty of money for Thunder Moon in the um, 2000 Guineas. Um, he came sort of dead last. He was, or, he was horrible on the day, but there's no obvious excuses. Um, he had a superb two-year-old campaign. Um, he won the group one national stakes. He was a third behind Samar's Basilica, which bolted in the French derby. Um, a pretty good club in the Dewhurst. Um, Frankie's aboard... He's got to have a decent chance if you're in a forgiving move. And he's currently 10s, which is like ooh, tempting. I'm not big on the Zoffany breed, but um, you know, 10s and Frankie in that sort of field, considering he was so well 
so well talked up over the winter. Uh, he's got to be a show. Um, I've got big question marks on all the all the Aiden O'Brien ones. Speaking, uh, touching on Aiden O'Brien, how forgiving are you then if you take the example of Battleground, who raced you know well late? They tr- they truckloaded him yeah. at Newmarket. They backed him from eight into nine to two in a classic race. That takes a considerable amount of money to do that. Like, and then he just didn't go up and down the hills, which I find quite odd considering he won at Ascot and Aiden O'Brien's got all sorts of different tracks and stuff. So um, Ryan's aboard this time, um, partly because Wembley's been so terrible in its two guineas runs. Um, he switched across. Um, no, it's it's a good horse. Um, I'm just not backing something that's, you know, high up, that high up in the market with so many question marks on it. Um, you know, they'll probably come out and, you know, fair chance they'll come out and prove me wrong, but um, it's tongue-tied first time. Uh, but he's, you know, I'm a bit cynical when it comes to the, the breeding operation. If I walk around out of found, they want him as a stallion. That is, you know, that's a 50 grand size a stallion fee sort of in there if they can get him to win a few group ones on that. So, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a fan. Not a fan uh, after what happened in Newmarket, and 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 not specifically touching on the horse, but it's a topic that we've discussed on a number of podcasts in the past. Then talking about Aidan O'Brien's sort of breeding operation, what are your opinions on situations in which he does put sort of you know three to five horses into a Group One? And you, you talked about maybe suggestions you have in terms of fixing racing. I'm of an opinion that there should be a cap on the number of horses a, a, a trainer or an owner could stick into a, an individual race. Yeah, the, there's a couple of different points there. I was actually quite annoyed didn't do the derby because I quite liked Sir Lamarack. Um, and then he went all, all in on Bolshoi Ballet, who then declared, and then, yeah, he well, apparently struck into himself, and that was part of the reason. Um, yeah, it, it's part, it depends on the sort of race. I really hate it in jumps races and the big nine J.P. Madison runners and another nine Gigginstown runners, and they're all in the same bloody colours except for the coloured cap, and it's wet. How on earth are you supposed to call a race or watch a race and try and find your horse when they look the darn same apart from a bloody ha- a cap? It's ridiculous. Three, you can have three runners in the same in the same with slight variation, then you have to have different sets of colours. If you want to have that, then by all means, you're, you're supporting the industry and you know, without, a, without the support of some of these guys, the, the industry would fall down and you wouldn't have enough runners regularly. But um, I just think at least throw some colours in. Um if they're declaring tactics and stuff like that, you can generally work out. You know, it's it's a very sure price that Ontario is going to be the pacemaker here for for them. Um, it's it's done nothing this season, so it's it's going to get thrown in. Um, they're gonna they're gonna try their hardest with Wembley and Battleground to salvage something out of them and hope something goes right. Um, as long as it's not the the worst one was the year that um, the the Australian horse came across, which gone into Coolmore, I think, Harada Sun, and I can't remember the name, whatever the horse was. But it was a it was a pacemaker. For, for Coolmore, because it had gone to the Coolmore stuff at that stage. And it just exited the stage right and just left the biggest gap up the rail for it. And it was just disgusting. That's that's the ultimate team tactics and, and, and blatant cheating. Couple them and disqualify them. That was shocking. Um, there's my rants. Um, I think it's a fact of life. There's going to be lots of them, but at least change the colours around a bit so we can actually work out which one's which. So you've, you've ruled out a few in this race. What would you then, sort of what's your, your bet for the race then? I'm pretty pretty keen on I think I'm keen on public Claire if he stays that sort of price. Mostar Mostar Daff undefeated Frank Colt hasn't gone above Felista class yet. Um, ticks all the boxes with Jim Crowley, um, Shad Wells slash former Shake Hampton. 
Um, Gosling all got great records. This is tough. Um, I think he still had a bit in hand when he won the Heron, um, beating beating a couple others that are in this field. Uh, but I, I think nine to two is a bit short based on what he's what he's done. Um, Chindit, I think, might be the best of the Brits. Uh, he was running on nine. He got too far back in the Guineas, and and I believe he ran home nicely. Uh, he was pretty good last last season. Um, what else did I note up here? That's basically it. Maximal. He's a decent horse that keeps keeps on going. He drops back from the mile two to a mile. I think he's a bit short of that, but it might be might be worth something to you know, run fourth, something to throw in. But um, yeah, I think the three Irish ones: Poetic Flair, Lucky Vega, Thunder Moon. Uh, I think they're in the top, and I'll probably probably rate them in that order. Yeah, I I actually completely agree everything that you've said. And come on, you're not paying me. You're not paying me, especially like conflicting opinions here. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah, no, I I just listen to what you say and then agree with everything. <laughs> no, no, no. My um, I, the thing is, this is the favourites. This is the favourites race. Like you looked at it in the last yep. twenty, I think there's been no better winner than or bigger price winner than ten to one, and that was Circus Maximus in 2019. And then I think I'll you go back to 2011 to look yep. at the nine to one winner. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty good pack. But this is a real favourite. And for me, I just I, I saw the race as a bit of like a two track race. Like you look at like the Guineas side of things with Poetic Fair, Lucky Vega, Wembley, Battleground, that kind of thing. And then you look at the side that went to the Heron Stakes. When you look at um, uh, Mostadaf, uh, Highland Avenue, etc. And and for me, I think the poetic flair side of things holds up better. So I I, I think poetic flair is a really good one here. I think it ran a pretty good second, even like after the win of the Guineas against McSweeney. But for me, for me, it edges it. It, it does better, and I think there's still pretty good value. I think it's trading at fours at the moment. So yeah, for me, that's that's the good one. For me. Interesting because so you say you like poetic flair at at uh, Scott at nine to at four to one. How short does it then have to get before you lose interest? I think threes is too short. Um, yeah, be keeping an eye on it and just seeing you know, what what Cool was, what Belly Doyle was doing with their with their cash if they're, they're trackloading anything. But that tends to happen very late, um, so you, you, know, you can't be caught out there. But what the if there's any real um, uh, confidence around Mostadaf in there, that's you know, there could there could be a fair bit left to go there. Um, but yeah, in the, a bit better than threes, I think. And, and then from that perspective, just from a betting technique or, or how much does, uh, sort of a major backing in the betting market and a shift in price, does that ever change your opinion on a race? If you do see a re- extremely well-backed horse, does that change sometimes how you, how you view things? It's a, it depends what you put. you've got to, you've got to write your own opinion, but at the same time you need to incorporate what else is going on in the world. Um, they're, they're not completely sort of isolated. So it's uh, if you've got dealing with a, a stable that's got a history of, of winning plunges, then or there's there's a reason for confidence. It might be a horse that's, um, for example, they're not. It's very touch and go on the ground, and then suddenly in the last half an hour, it's like right, the, this ground is fine. Let's let's just lump on, and and they know what they're doing. Um, and then there's others like. There's, there's rich connections that are just like throwing money away. They haven't no, table table and McManus, for example, have made their money through bookmaking. So they know what they're doing. There are other people in this game who have made their money by other things and are quite happy to throw lots of money away and not have quite the same the same amount of discipline without that punt. Um, you just have to look at things in different ways, and it's it's not it's not the same every time. Um, a, a market drift. You now, if it goes from threes to sixes, it's like, oh, hang on, what's going on here? 
but if it's threes out to out to fours or something like that, because particularly because it's something else has been supported. If it's just drifting and nothing else is really shortening, that's more of a concern than one horse being heavily backed and pushing everything else out. So far, we've had Sam mostly disagree with Scott in this race. Are you are you disagreeing or are you, are you making it a... Yeah, actually, this this one I am going to disagree. Um, and I'm actually going to go to the to the Heron Stakes. Um, and I know it's only a listed race and it didn't actually win, but uh, I'm going to side with Highland Avenue on this one. And a lot of the reason is actually I heard an interview with Osteen Murphy and he said this race is a one-horse race and he picked actually Highland Avenue over anyone else. Now... The caveat to that is I then went and looked. He hasn't raced against Poetic Flair this year. So he doesn't actually have that sight, you know, like race experience against Poetic Flair. Um, but he's said that Highland Avenue is just an absolutely impressive horse and that it needs really firm ground. And when it gets a good ground, he thinks that there's going to be no stopping this horse um, and it's going to power home down the straight. So I. I mean, he was very adamant about how impressed he was with this horse. Um, and, you know, you have William Buick on it, who's ridden it before. Um, it was giving three pounds to uh, Def in that race. So if you take away that weight, you know, they're they're pretty close right on the line there. And, and Highland Avenue was coming, coming at the line. So um, I'm going to side with that. I think my other pick would be the favorite in Poetic Flair. Um, I think what Scott said, though, does concern me. It's it's raced a lot. And not only has it raced a lot, they, those were all tough races. I mean, it was a short head to master the seas in the guineas and then a short head second to, to Max Sweeney in the Irish guineas. And that was a you know heavy, heavy ground. And he had to really dig deep in that one. So I hope it's not, I hope it's coming at a hundred percent because, you know, it's a great race and you want to see all these horses coming in at, at their top form. And it's a slight worry for me, but I, I think you cannot knock that form that it's had uh, this year. It's it's super impressive. I mean, even the even the race in uh, Longchamp, it, you know, it wasn't that far. It was sixth, right? But it wasn't that far of a sixth, and it was coming on at the end, and it was it was not its ground, um, and it had just raced two weeks before. So it's 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 a solid horse, um, but I think I'm going to go Highland Avenue at the prices, and then uh, Poetic Flair. I think would be I can't knock you against taking poetic flair okay. while you're in that race the the heron one the the third horse um bull ace uh was only beaten a half length halfway half from mustard off and highland avenue it's going around a much bigger price um previously wrecked up three wins in the trot still improving um and you know the likes of beckett and crouch don't get the sort of ratings that um either godolphin or gosden do um i don't think there's much much in that there so that might be a, a big price for a you know, if you can get four places. Yeah, and I'll round things up. You mentioned Chindit. You're saying you labeled it as potentially being the best of the British. For me, it's it's my bet for this race, currently around 17 to 2. I just think the ground couldn't be better, and the firmer it gets, the better it is for it. So on that, as an each-way bet, I, don't, I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of confidence from a win perspective. It's actually one of the races where on the sort of I might look even for at place-only markets um personally but uh and i know as frank and sam have also known i've placed a number of place only markets and had bookmakers routinely try and talk me out of them on the day at royal ascot mm. and and convince me that i'll be very upset when the horse i'm betting on wins i've yet to actually have a bookmaker try to talk me out of it and then actually watch the horse win so that will be my that will be my my play for this race 
Yeah, and you, you've also done that and then lost the ticket too. So. <laughs> yes, but I, I got more from the story than I got from, I would have gotten from the actual ticket itself. So that's, it paid for itself in that. Now, Frank, we can move on to a, to a race that you've always loved in the past, which is the Ascot Stakes. Things get interesting, you know, very different type of race going to two mile three furlongs just over. Um, a horse that's a race that's often been dominated by Mullins and, and more. Um, an interesting one for uh, well, distance at Ascot, at least, that's often dominated by the pair. Franco, maybe I'll actually let you start this one off, mix things, mix the order up a little bit. You have, yeah, you know, a fairly heavy favorite by the way things are going, and it seems to be shortening all the time. What's your, what's your play? <laughs> Yeah, this so it's really funny you say that. I I enjoy the five furlong races at Royal Ascot, and I enjoy the super long ones for some reason. These are like two of my favorites. Uh, yeah, you said the the more Mullins connection they won in 2012, 2015, and 2017 on this race. Um, I was hoping actually this would be the race you start with Scott because I don't have a strong opinion here. Um, I, I I don't know much about the favorite. You know, it hasn't raced. In, in a long time on the flat, obviously it's been in the jumps, but, um, they're always so tricky, you know, when you see six or seven jumps horses in there, you know, what's the one that's just got the best handicapped right now. It's, it's so tough to, to pick it when they drop them back to flat. Um, the only one that I kind of picked, picked out was actually a, uh, flat race horse was, uh, Elysian flame. Um, so it's back down the weights a little, um, it had actually, had won uh, at this distance before, so its its use to the distance was always nice. Um, it's been doing pretty well this year. I uh, had a nice win, and then in the Chester Cup or Vaz, I forget which one it was. I think it was the Cup. Um, it it just didn't have a, a clear run, so it was it was a fifth. Um, but or Chester played actually, I think it was. So I think that is at about fourteen to one, um, and that's a horse with the proven distance. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I don't I don't have a strong opinion on this. You and me both, I think. Um, yeah, so this, you know, as you said, there were forwards often rated by jumps trainers. This year, there's a few, promising to see a few jumps, uh, sorry, flat stables in here, decent ones. Godolphin, John Gosden, um, Dermot Well and Roger Varian are all in here, trying to hand out even George Bowie. Um, so it's not all, hopefully not just a Willie Mullins benefit. Um, not the sort of race I get too excited about. Um, basically, it's in, the, in a very hard sort of bracket. Um, a couple of, couple of coins that it, Notch up. Um, Kate Gentleman, um, the top weight, sort of won the Irish Zarowich last season, uh, two miles before switching to hurdling. He was quite handy at that, won, won two, of, two of four, including one including a, a group race. Uh, he's classy, he's earned top weight. There's not a huge spread of weights in this. It's only it's about nine pounds, I think. About nine pounds. It's not a, it's not a huge gap in, for a handicap. Um, Island Brave, um, he's going to be massive odds. Um, it was last beaten 13 lengths by Stradivarius last time. Uh, here in late April, uh, I doubt any of the other runners in the field to get get that close. Um, he was just two lengths behind uh, the frequent Melbourne Cup runner Prince of Aaron in that race. Uh, he went over two miles here in good on good to firm last summer, uh, up seven pounds from that, and, and seems to have found this sort of mark much tougher. But he does claim seven with uh, Callum Hutchinson aboard. Uh, Forty to one with four or five places probably isn't the worst bet ever seen for that. Uh, after that. Uh, MC Muldoon was a favourite. Um, he was rated 96 from his three-year-old flat career and then had two years off and then went hurdling. 
Um, he's certainly talented there. Second in G2, two stars back. Uh, it's been popular ever since markets opened. It's got Ryan, Mark, Ryan Moore aboard, so ticks lots of boxes. You said you mentioned the uh, the Ryan Moore and Willie Mullins connection for this race. Uh, Ray Apores, the other one from Mullins, um, with Derby winning jockey Adam Kirby on. Um, it's wild cards, only had one star for Mullins, um, and third in a maiden hurdle just the other week. Um, since being bought out of France, quite handy on the flat there, but basically you're banking on the wisdom of Willie if you're taking six to one here. It could, uh, anything could happen. Um, there's a bunch of four year olds, flat train four year olds in this. Um, Trumpet Man for Mark Johnson, uh, Lost with Eagle for George Bowie, Untold Story for Godolphin, Postilio for Roger Varian. Uh, and golden rules for, for John Gosson. Um, all pretty lightly raced, very slight, um, lightly raced from uh, strong stables. If push or tip, I'd go with Untold Story um, with Godolphin and Asheen Murphy, but um, about 16 to 1. But to be honest, I'm more likely to sit this one out, or uh, to be honest, who am I kidding? Probably a small stakes race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice to think that you might stick one out on day one, uh, sit one out on day one of Royal yeah. Ascot, but. Yeah, it's, t- it's tough to do. I'm actually, I'm in the same camp as you with Untold Story, because as you touched on, there's a lot of runners here, you know, from the flat. At least with Untold Story, you can be certain that it looks as if it should be sort of bred to stay, which, given the nature of the race, is important. Um, but, and the, I mean, hopefully our play spot is still alive at this point, and it's going to be a sort of crucial linchpin in, in seeing the, uh, seeing the returns sort of, skyrocket up if you if you make it through this one very much so yeah it's a this is a tough one if you can get through this well done well you problem is you've still got to go through the wolferton and the copper horse as well so it's pretty unforgiving at that point this whole day but um yeah it's um yeah it's always an interesting race this ascot one but i i actually like the looks of uh, lost with in this one um uh, holly doyle coming out and saying she'd been working a lot on this horse and um, they kind of preferred it. They had an entry for the Copperhead as well a couple of races later, but they chose the Ascot Stakes. Interestingly, side from Camelot as well, um, and coming out of Dane Hill. Um, it's quite interesting, really. Look, not, not fantastic horses coming out of Camelot at the moment, but there's some good stayers coming out of Camelot at the moment. So it's interesting to see something like a progressive horse like Lost With You coming out of Camelot for this kind of race. Um, stepped up in a couple of races and also had some pretty solid seconds as it continues to step up. So pretty progressive. And I like the idea of like the 14 to 1 value on it. So, yeah, for me, it's like lost with you. I like And Frank, you know, you you didn't really, you started us off, but what's your what's your final selection? I'd say Elysian Flame. Um, I think it's, it, I always get nervous. Like, I, I like Sam's pick, the, the lost with you, but I mean, it's, it's longest race is, is one mile six. So it's a, another huge step up. You know, it's another five furlong step up and trip. Whereas Elysian Flame, you know, it isn't as progressive, but at least you can kind of be confident it's going to hit that two mile two, two mile three that it's it's hit before. So, um, again, I'm not super confident, but I think that would be like if I had a play spot, that would definitely be the pick. Okay. And things, as you touched on, Sam, things don't get much easier in the Wolferton. Uh, pretty open race, number of very difficult to dismiss any of the runners, really. I'll start us off by saying yeah. that my person, like, I am leaning towards Felix, who I think ran well in the Winter Derby. I think the form behind Lord North looks quite good, uh, and at around seven to one, tempts me there that I can get sort of decent each way value on a horse that I think will run its race. Um, so that's that's where I'm leaning. But Scott, to be interested to know sort of what your breakdown of the race is. 
I actually quite like Felix as well. Um, yeah, you can cover that. Uh, upheld his winter derby form, just second with third place in the Dubai turf in March. Earning connections nearly 300 grand uh, and more than quadrupling his career prize money, despite being the equal lowest horse in the in the field. So he's, he's uh, shooting above his weight, but he's, he's up there. Uh, while he hasn't run on turf in Europe for almost two years, don't let that put you off. Uh, Mayan Rum is a career best ahead of a few horses who would be more than competitive here. Um, he hasn't got the hype of a Gosson or Stout runner, but he'll be right up there. Um, so it's definitely in. I was um, a little disappointed to see him in single figures, but um, you know, so be it. Uh, 15 to 2 currently. You know, that'll turn into, that'll probably turn into double figures on Betfair. Um, Cut lots are through in. Um, Soul of the Stone, I think, is just the class act. Um, won easily or won well at, uh, at Windsor last time when Ryan Moore elected to go down the other side of the uh, down the rail when everyone else went out wide uh, including Stormy Antarctic and he won by two and a half lengths um, he pushed favourites on that side that time time was good so I'm inclined to think it was more than just better ground um, more impressively the form before and after that race is red hot uh, he had five rivals that day three of them were last start winners while the other one the other pair have been runners up Four of them have run since, three winners, and one of those horses ran third to one of the others. So it's a hot little race. Um, two starts here, beaten around two lengths each time, most recently second in the Barramoral on, on Champions Day behind Niord, who would have been a big chance here, but he's I think he's gone to the Royal Hunt Cup. Uh, so he'll be popular, and it's it's a stout handicapper with Ryan Moore aboard. Um, so it's I'd be surprised if he wasn't favourite. Um, well, Patrick Salas fell down the bottom. Down, down there, who's who's quite talented. Um, he was going to be a leading chance in the um, Australian Spring Features last year, but decided not to go. Um, he, after eight months off, he was beaten ahead by a rival he conceded sixteen pounds to, so he looks ready to hit top form. But in Joseph O'Brien's stable tours, he didn't seem to get excited about the horse. So I'm not sure whether that's him playing in things under the car, under the um, playing cards close to his chest, or it's just a gelding. So there's no point pumping him up. Because he's not a stallion prospect like his like his dad would. Um, so that's my top three. I've actually got one at big odds, but I'll okay. wait till the end. So I'll give you guys a chance to, to speak before uh, I, I really reveal that one. One question that you kind of raised there. So you touched on the fact that sort of Felix might be a bit shorter. It's Marco Botti and it doesn't quite get the hype that you know, some other trainers or stables would get. How do you factor that in then when you, you know, I mean, for example, you know with Royal Ascot that almost every Dottori horse is going to be maybe a bit shorter than it should be. Same thing can happen with Ryan Moore on a day if he has a couple of winners. How do you factor in stable hype or jockey hype into where you're looking for value? Yeah, sometimes you sort of look at it and think, if this is a distant stable, what price would it be? Would it be any shorter? Um, is there any reason to mark this down because of the trainer and jockey? Uh, Marco Body's pretty talented. He just doesn't have the resources of some of them. Uh, and a sheen's aboard. You're not going to mark it down for having a sheen on top. Um it's again. I'm sort of sitting on the fence here every time, but it's a case by case sort of basis. Um, you will see some that I've, I've met, gone gone with a few that are, I think just way too short based on based on trends and stuff like that. And I, I can't have them at, at double the price. Um, whereas others, you think, okay, I could, you know, hopefully this one drifts drifts another point or two. I could I could seriously get involved here. But um, yeah, it's it's that fine balance between potential reality. And the the trends or the or the connections or the people are just blindly back to Tory at Ascot or Gosson or O'Brien or yeah, um, Rachel at at, um, at Cheltenham or something like that. Yeah, you have to try and factor in. It, it, it's not an exact science, um, 
it's just how much how much margin have you got on there? How much confidence do you have? You know, if it's if it's an absolute screen river bet, then you know sometimes I'm happy to take color points below what I think it is. But if it's if it's just a bet, then I've got a pretty fine line on on what, what price I'd take. So just just to add to that, so my tip was Felix as well, and one of the things was you know the kind of like it's on all weather, but don't let it fool you because it's done it on turf as well. My cur- my my question yep. for you is like. How do you address all weather form transitioning to turf or vice versa? Do you look at sectionals? Do you look at placing? Like, how do, what do you judge to see if that turf form can transfer or the um, the dirt form can transfer, uh, etc.? Traditionally, traditionally, Ascot is has been seen to be uh, all weather form has actually been a good a good sign uh, as it's quite a sandy surface. Um, it perhaps is running style. Um, I don't think there's a huge amount of difference between them, to be honest with with um, with Polytrack and Tapita and, and Turf. Like so, some will show distinct distinct likings for it, some of that. Um, it's not as if it's subtle and and um, whatever stuff they're ripping up is five percent um, or, or dirt. Um, it's if they've had one or two failures on it in the past, then it's a pretty small sample size, and don't don't necessarily chuck it out. There could be all sorts of other reasons. It could just be natural. Like I was saying before, with the uh, whatever the horse was had. Uh, good and then two softs. Um, that could be just natural progression. Just could be purely coincidence. Nothing to do with the service at all. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. If, if the horse has got genuine talent and it can excel, if it can accelerate in all weather, it's going to accelerate on, on turf. I would have thought it's usually the other way around. The horse will struggle to struggle to accelerate on an all weather. But it's a part of it's a reading a race as as well. Are they, you know, are they slinging off the bend at Lingfield because? Because it's been a fast pace, and the pace just breaks down, and they look fast coming home, but because ever, everything else has stopped, um, or do they have a genuine acceleration, and they can go past horses that are still going at a decent speed? Um, it, you sort of have to use the eye, listen to what people, other people are saying, and then look at some look at some data. If you can get some times and sectionals and stuff like that, it's, it's not it's not a, it's not a simple one, and I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out a horse, wouldn't rule out a horse on it just because just because of one failure, unless it was. It was absolutely terrible. There was nothing to, um, no, no reason to, to suggest um, it, could, it could improve. All right, Frank, pressure's on, pressure's on you. Is it all the water, Felix? Pressure makes diamonds, oh, no. Frank. No, that would make it a banker of the day. It is. I, I also uh, was going to go Felix. Lay, lay uh, so, the yeah. hell out of it. Uh, Scott, Scott, it. Just to let, just, Scott, just to let you know, Frank the other day said that Nadal was the safest bet in sport <laughs> in the tennis. So <laughs> we, this, is, this has now become a big problem, him back in Felix. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has that great form um, against uh, Lord North. And then it ran against Force of Dean, Who's second favorite right now, uh, but now matched up. Now he's getting five pounds. Um, so there's, I think they were really close in that race. I think he lost by under a length. So getting some weight, you know, I think it's. I think it'll definitely reverse the form. Um, I think Patrick Sarsfield is is a worry though. I mean, he's he's definitely got the form out of anyone in this race. I mean, he's what he was. Uh, I'm trying to think in Arc Day. Yep. Uh, he was second in Arc Day against yeah against Scalati, and then um, also third against Barney Roy in uh, in Germany. So the the form is is head and shoulders above anyone else in this race. But yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, 
I wanted Felix, and then when I heard all three shoot Felix, I have to I have to go with the crowd, I guess, right? But I, I think four to one is a decent price for for Sarsfield, though, considering considering the form he has compared to you know not much else who's even had group group racing except for you know Felix and and Force of Dean. I mean, it's I don't think it's too yeah, bad. The favorite's going to have a slight a little penalty there, so he's carrying nine six against Patrick Southworth nine three. So I don't tend to read a huge amount into, into just just three pounds, but um, every little bit helps, as they say. Well, there, well, there you go. I guess that makes it the big chill uh, tip of the tip of day one. Everyone, everyone listening can can just plow into Felix and then they know. Now, my my, te- my, uh, my big price <laughs> teaser that I threw out there before, um, Victory Chime uh, on 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 the Beckett Stable yet again. Um, he hasn't finished out of the top four in his last eleven starts. Most recently, second at Epsom behind Blue Cup, and he gave that easy winner eleven. Uh, sorry, ten pounds that day. Um, start before that, you beat Sky Defender again at Epsom with a six-pound advantage. Um, he's got an enviable strike rate of nine from 24 and has achieved career-best race most races, most recent two starts. Very honest, might be a silly price. Um, draw, uh, draw 13 doesn't particularly help, but, um, but again, Beckett and Hornby, not going to be the sexy stable combinations of even even your King Power ones there or uh, Andre Saini right from the Shake and those sort of ones. Um, he, you know, 33s. I might just have a little nibble at that price. Well, could I guess if that comes in each way and Felix wins the race, then it's a it's a good day all around for all the listeners. But we can then move on to the the final race of the day, a, a, a race that was added to the calendar last year, which is the Copper Horse Stakes. It is the market is once again topped by a Mullins Moore combination, which you know once you start going over a mile four, it's not that surprising to see that sort of combination featuring at the top of the betting market. Um, you also have Global Storm at 5-1, to one, Onto Victory at 9-1, to one, Sleeping Lion at 10-1, to one, uh, Throne Hall at 10-1, to one, and then they sort of get 14-1 to one or bigger. Difficult, again, kind of trying to read into some of the sort of some horses with form over the flat, some not. Scott, where, what's, your, what are you th- what's your thinking on this race? Tough one here. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't overly excited about it to be honest. I'll be heading. To, I think I'd be head, hopefully heading towards the bar, um, which is based on my own house. But even still, um, Global Storm was was pretty impressive last start. It beat there's a form line through him, which is you know in a few others actually beat Lost with Eel last time. Last time out, uh, pretty well there. Um, that's right, and it's got lines form lines through um, Zabil Champion, who's who's quite handy. Um, also in there, you had. Had the likes of uh, Cardano um, for three Williams, who's decent sort of go. Last start was a shocker in the at Chester, but Chester's just Chester and was wet and, and that sort of thing there. But before that, he'd, he'd racked up a string of other first or seconds at Muzzle Run and also Linkfield during the during this all weather uh, stayers championship heats and stuff like that. Uh, he's got quite a bit of talent. Um, one I what I've followed for a while is um, the Max We Can. Um, for Mark for Mark Johnson, um, he pulled out of Chester because yeah, who needs an excuse to come out of Chester when you're either drawn wide or, or it's raining? Uh, previous start he ran he, he ran ran last in a, in a field of three, which is just a joke. No, and he carried more than a stone a stone more than the other two horses. Uh, just stop start and you know, three horse races as opposed to what's just got to be sixteen. Uh, just put a complete line through it. Uh, beat Cardano the previous start, second to Ocean Wind, who's quite talented at Newmarket um, in the Cesarowicz last year. Um, 
He goes all right, and he was actually second in this race last year behind Fujera Prince. So, and he's on the same same a pound higher. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get excited about this. Um, to be honest, I haven't done a huge depth of foot amount of form, and I, to be honest, I think I'd rather put it into Wednesdays rather than rather than wasting time going any further on this. Um, after what's hopefully been a profitable day, uh, so I'll just take uh, the max we can and, and play it small. Fair enough, Sam. Is this is this a um, just out of interest? Is this additional card now a permanent thing? Because I know that yes. it was initially done because of a COVID thing, but this is a you know this it, isn't changing. It is, but unfortunately, they're still racing. It's still starting at half past two, so this race is after six o'clock. Well, they yeah. just get lazy to arrive early and have lunch early, and they start at half past <laughs> one like a normal race day. It's beyond me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I've seen people drinking pretty early. I, I thought yeah. it would have been better to kind of start early, finish at the same time, but they've decided to uh, maintain the alcoholism for that little bit longer. I mean, going yeah. to 10 past six is a bit crazy. It feels a bit crazy. For an well, it's automatically got to go onto the, onto the B channel. Um, although, is it all on the B channel because of football? Might all be on the B channel. Uh, no, St. James's Palace onwards is on ITV4, the restaurant on ITV. Um, yeah, because I switched to football or something. But um, yeah, it's... It's, it's nice a late start, but if you're having more races, don't extend the day even further because people are going to get home. Um, started just start the darn thing earlier. Yeah, I think that getting home is the real issue because yeah. I mean, getting out of Ascot and getting back to London can be a bit of a challenge at the best of times. And if you do want to have a drink or two yeah. after the races and then deal with the crowds, that means a very late arrival back into London after potentially, hopefully, a winning day. But if you've had a losing day and then you're getting home at ten, eleven o'clock at night, it might not be the happiest day ever. Yeah, it'd be interesting oh. to see how how, um, how much they cram the trains too with um, current yeah, lockdown restrictions point. and what they what they do there. Um, now they're letting in twelve thousand people. How many of those are going to come without cars? Uh, well, hopefully a lot of them do because most of them will have a drink. Frank, what's your you, you're going to end the day with a, a Mullins more bet, or are you you're looking further down the market? No, it's a little further, not much. I mean, I was actually going to say I'd. I don't like the addition of the seventh race. I love that there was six races. It was like the perfect time. But now that I remember, this was the race that actually saved me on day one. <laughs> I, I slotted in a Fujiara Prince and, 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 and made back a decent, decent profit to, to roll it over into day two, which was nice. So I can't, I can't knock this race until I lose this year. Then I can start bashing it. Um, but I'm going to go Global Storm. Uh, it's been pretty progressive going up in uh, distance. So it was pretty good at, at one mile two and then one mile four, uh, just recently went up to one mile six, which is what this race is, uh, and won that race in a, in a, was a really good ride. It's up, I think only three pounds from that. So it's, it's, it's still got, I think a little left in it. Um, so I'm going to go with global storm. Not, not a very sexy pick. Uh, I think it's six to one right now. So second favorite, but, um, yeah, we'll see. Sam. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I have a pick for this one. It, it, I was going with the favourite, uh, Soldier. The more Mullins thing. I, I love watching Ryan Moore in these long races when he um, eventually, well, he's at the back, he kind of swings around the final turn and all of a sudden starts absolutely ploughing through the field, but usually leaves it about maybe a length too late. So usually just gets beaten or uh, just kind of misses out on the line. It's kind of infuriating usually. But the interesting thing about um, Soldier is like, this year run twice against honeysuckle and i think that's great competition it's very interesting to see a horse that can go up against such quality like that so it's um it, it's kind of more what it's done before and the quality it's run against um 
I'm not thinking anything special about this race. I'm not going to put much money on it. I'll probably start thinking about Wednesday already. But yeah, Soldier for me. Sam, I got a question for you. Is is a 74 length loss <laughs> to Honeysuckle? Is that good form still? <laughs> I, I, I didn't say it was good form. I said it had run against I mean, good I, I think I lost by 76. So. <laughs> so, so Eddie can run next to them on the track too. It doesn't mean he's got a chance. Well, you could say it's progression, right? Because it was 74 and then I think it ran next time out and only got beaten by about 15. So we'll, let, let's change it to progression thing, yeah. rather than uh, <laughs> classical. Yeah, that problem. rate. So be yeah. winning by 25 yeah. next time out. So uh, at that rate, Honeysuckle's got a big problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult one. And it's one of those races where you, I, you definitely want to be up with this one coming up and then you feel like you can maybe a little, play a little bit with a little bit of house money and, and have a bit of fun for the final race. You definitely don't want to be down and feeling compelled to bet on this one. That's for sure. But uh, I think the favorite, I think all signs point towards it if you are looking in many ways, but at 11 to four, I think it's just too short for me to be have, especially even if I was up, you start having to think about quite a sort of decent bet in order to have too much interest in it. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit tempted um, by Throne Hall, who slightly race does look quite progressive. Um, the, the prospect of stepping up in trip Looks looks quite good. Uh, has you know the the ground getting firmer could could well suit as well. So I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of confidence in it, but hopefully, if I've had a good opening six races, I'll be in a position to back a horse at, at ten to one and and hope that something nice happens. So Scott, I guess as we wrap things up, if you had to have two bets for the day, then as you're sort of a nap and one extra. What, what What's the bet? Two for the day. Uh, well, I'm trying to think. Best Roy Pody Claire, I think, and probably the strongest in the voting price. Uh, I'm pretty keen on Angel Blur, um, 20s each way. I think that race, I think, and you know, should be able to get five places pretty easily on that on that particular race. Um, after that, there's a few each way devils. I'm going. I'm, I've thrown out elsewhere, Victory Chime, uh, and Keep Busy in particular, and and Pogo, um, but they'll be they'll be fairly fairly sort of small stakes, maybe even maybe just a, just a bit of fun throwing lucky each way lucky fifteen or something like that just to catch something. Try and have some absolute bonanza should it all happen, but um, I'd say that's fairly unlikely. But what the hell, I'd rather have a rather have a ticket like that than um, than than just waste two fifty on a on the um, Euro Moons because. At least one will got some well, some sort of clue about and possibly a chance. <laughs> nice outlet. That makes sense. Yeah. Frank, same same question. Nat plus one. What's here? Oh, I didn't know we were even putting the amateurs on 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 the clock here. Um, I'm gonna go Highland Avenue uh, to take on Portic Flair in that race. Uh, just the, the way it was talked up, I think it could be something great. Um, and then. I mean, I, I know it's a heavy favorite, but I think Batash, there's value at two to one when it won this race last year at odds on. Um, so, you know, I think there's a little bit to that. So, you know, that was the first favorite winner of the King Stands in 2000. Yeah, that's because Batash has been the favorite and loses every year. <laughs> Still a good 12 years of non favoritism until Batash 
loses. Well, the only reason Batash won is because Blue Point wasn't running, right? <laughs> well, it's due again, then you can yeah, say. Exactly. Sam, you're 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 poking holes in in Frank's beds. What are, what are your yeah, what are your two? Yeah, um, I really like Poetic Flair. I I think it's got such good pedigree going into a face uh, a race that's very very known for favorites for winning as well so i think that kind of four to one looks pretty good for it uh I, i'm with scott though if it starts going in shorter if it starts hitting around the kind of threes i'd start to get a little bit nervous for that kind of value on it um and then i really like lost with you i know it's a weird one in the ascot stakes to kind of think something's good but i think it's a solid 14 to one shot I, um everyone's speaking positively about it it's got good pedigree uh it's got holly doyle on it really happy about it and i think there's good value in it well, I'll make things things interesting as two of you have picked uh, uh, Poetic Flare as your nap. I will make two of us picking Highland Avenue as a nap. So we can have a real match bet there, I suppose. And uh, and my other bet of the day, I'm actually going to, depressingly, because this will mean that there's probably no chance of either one of them winning, but also side with Frank, which is if I can get two to one on Batash. Oh, God. I think it's a nap. It's a... <laughs> It's a solid bet. Yeah, I know. It's it's more depressing for me than it is for you, Frank. Trust me. Well, you can do the reverse forecast, Highland Ave and uh, Poetic Flair. Oh, we're shortening the name now. Yeah. It's so quick. No you're not going to be able to say name. the whole name once it you know once it flies home. But Scott, uh, you know, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us and to for all the information and insight that you provided. A pleasure. Anytime ch- chance to uh, chat about high grade racing is um, yeah, more than happy to give my time for. It's uh, it's a great game. It really is, and um, yeah, and the betting part of it just uh, opens that up and makes it even more exciting. Yeah, and it, it would be great to have you back on, and and obviously maybe even next time talk about some other sports. I know you're a keen tennis tennis fan, so could even have some tennis discussions in the future, but. Um, and I, I guess that's a good tennis, golf, Olympics. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Australia. We we follow just about everything. Um, the one thing I'm not that doesn't come top of my list is uh, is the round ball game. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> that's going to be a so pain. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a sport, not the sport. I, I still I'll still follow it, okay. but it just doesn't it doesn't uh, if, get huge amounts of. Emotion. If not, it might have been a painful few weeks for you coming up. But um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you. And and I guess an opportunity to to say anyone who's enjoyed it to follow you on on Twitter where you're Boris ranting, which I guess is another hint at the, the tennis, tennis connection. <laughs> That's yeah. Uh, it, well, going back, when was this? 1988. Yeah. Uh, I was in, in first year, first year residential college and um, playing, you know, you know, college V college uh, tennis tournaments. And uh, I turned up wearing full on tennis gear. So I played a lot of junior tennis and uh, everyone else just turned up in uh, shorts and singlets and uh, drank a free beer. And um, they started wanting to chant at someone. So uh, I became Boris and it stuck basically. And the, <laughs> and the, the ranting parts, um, I've had the odd tirade in this, in this, in this chat. Uh, occasionally I do uh, like to tee off on things, not quite as much as I used to, but uh, I still tee off a bit on uh, topics that don't, uh, I don't approve of. And then where else? Because you, you obviously you have your your website where you you put some previews up. Where else can people yep. sort of find your, your your previews and your thoughts on on racing and other topics? Uh, sport is made for betting dot com. It's a it's a blog I started. Golly, it's, just, it's been going for about four twelve years or something like that now, possibly a bit longer. Um, it's still ticking over, not quite as regular as I used to. I, don't, I used to have um, 
it's you invite people off, off Twitter just to write um, uh, write their own previews. That's you know, the, the, the words that moved on. Now everyone, everybody's dog's got one, or they just can't be bothered writing a full length one. Just do it before they do it on Twitter or they have a podcast, for example. Um, <laughs> but I still, I'll, I'll, I'll put out, I'll probably put out a, a feature race and a, a summary of the rest of the races on um, each day for all Ascot. Uh, that seemed to work well for Cheltenham. Managed to uh, managed to get a um, one one big winner at fifties uh, overnights and um, a happy a happy happy mate so sent me a sent me a crate of these which is uh, little creatures and oh, that wow. was just finishing off the final one. Um, a Belfast Belfast banter uh, when they got up so that was a that was cheered on very well. Uh, yeah, so I'll probably put a, a feature race and a, and a summary of the rest up for the week just for it just more than anything it focuses my interest. On doing and doing proper study rather than rather than you know, going race to race and, and being a mug, which um, we're all prone to at times, no matter how, how hard we preach discipline. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, thanks again for joining us, Frank, Sam. Thanks for uh, providing your tips. Hopefully, between the three of us, we've managed to identify one or two winners. I mean, Four of us. I suppose maybe we can count on Palace Pier. But... <laughs> Let's hope that's not our only winner on the day. <laughs> No. Scott, thanks so much. And really appreciate it. No worries, guys. Thank you. Very fun. Thank you. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. Cheers.